Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I'm so glad that you joined us today. And in today's show, we're going to talk about meditation. So this is something that's been around for a very long time, but I feel like in the past decade or so has gotten a lot more mainstream with celebrities, professional athletes, Oprah. I mean, once Oprah does it, I guess you can't get much more mainstream than that. Um, all taking on meditation challenges and encouraging people to meditate. And so as a physical therapist, um, I was just sort of thinking, well, what does meditation actually do? And I think I was more interested in what does what effects does it have on the brain and how does that affect you as a person? And, you know, meditation is more than, well, it makes you happy or, or it just works, so you should do it. But I wanted to get a little bit deeper into that. And so to help me... Today, I'm very, very happy to have on the show Dr. Sarah Lazar. She is an associate researcher in the psychiatry department at Massachusetts General Hospital and an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. The focus of her research is to elucidate the neural mechanisms underlying the beneficial effects of yoga and meditation, both in clinical settings and in healthy individuals. She is a board member of the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies, and also the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, and is a contributing author to Meditation and Psychotherapy. She has been practicing yoga and mindfulness meditation since 1994. Her research has been covered by numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, and WebMD, and her work is featured in a display at the Boston Museum of Science. So, uh, Dr. Lazar, thank you for coming on, and I can't wait to get into all this information with you. Thank you for having me. Great. So, so let's get started first by, and we'll obviously get into the effects of meditation on the brain, but let's get a little bit more about your background. So, sort of what sparked your interest into this research on how meditation and yoga affects the brain? Right. So um, a friend and I decided we were going to run the Boston Marathon, but I overtrained and um, uh, I hurt my knee very badly in my back and had really bad pain. And so I went to see a physical therapist and they told me I had to stop running and I had to just stretch. And as I was leaving the physical therapist's office, I saw an ad for a vigorous yoga class that promised to um, increase uh, flexibility, but also to um, uh, promote cardiovascular uh, endurance and strength and, um, you know, and, and muscle strength as well. So I thought, okay, this is a way I could just stretch but still stay in shape and maybe I could still run a marathon. So I started practicing yoga purely as a form of, of the physical therapy. And you know, at that point, I thought it was all a bunch of hooey. <laughs> I didn't think very much of it. And, uh, but after about a month, I was hooked. And I never went back to running. And, um, you know, the pain went away and, uh, you know, I, I, um, you know, and I'm able to do yoga certainly and go about most of my daily activities pain-free. If I do a lot of walking or like, a, um, you know, then my knee will start to hurt again a little bit, but for the most part, you know, I'm, I'm pain-free now. Um, but anyways, and so then I was really excited about it and wondered how could this possibly work. And so, um, at the time I was in graduate school. And um, as I finished my PhD, I decided to completely switch my field of study and just study meditation and yoga and how it impacts the brain. And so you never ran the marathon? Never ran the marathon. Uh, <laughs> I never went back to running, yeah. Well, no, that's so. okay. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, <laughs> doing other things now. Of course. So, you know, in reading through your research, one thing that I really noticed is that all the papers and the research seem to be a real collaborative effort. So mm. if you, can you mention some of the people that you work with and sort of how did you find these people? How did you hook up with these people? <laughs> And how has it helped or hindered your research, sort of working it with, with so many different authors? Yeah, no. With neuroscience, you, it really is a team effort. It's very difficult to do studies by yourself. It really requires a lot of different types of expertise. And um, some of the people um, are just people who work at the MGH Imaging Center, where I work, and who, you know, some of them practiced meditation. And so, you know, when they heard that I was doing the study, they came and found me. <laughs> but other people, you know, I just went and started talking to them. And, you know, they were curious. You know, a lot of them didn't know much about it or were a little dubious. Um, but I had done one small study, sort of, and got a little bit of time to data. And as I started showing that data to other people, they got more curious. And so they were willing to, to help me out. And so uh, it's been it's been really fascinating, and it's I think it's really good to have a mixture of people who know and understand yoga and meditation, and those who don't and who are skeptical, you know, because they really look at the data with a very skeptical eye, mm -hmm. and they really help make sure that because um, sometimes when you read these studies, you know, they're just saying there's a tiny little change, and they're saying, oh yes, this means everything, and you know, meditation's fantastic, and uh, you know, the data is just not there. And so, so, you know, having that skeptical eye and a little bit of rigor, I think, is really, really useful. Mm -hmm. Because do you find that sometimes people sort of look at these studies and, and cherry pick one or two aspects of the study and say, oh, this is, this is the end all be all? When exactly. Because I see this a lot of times, you know, when you read through things and at the end it says, you know, further research is needed to, right. you know, X, Y, and Z, yet people see things and they think, this right. is it. I'm. I'm. This right. is the study. I'm citing this. That's it. So I guess to right. have that that view of skepticism, like you said, is yeah. a, a critical eye. Is I would think imperative. Yes. Well, further study is needed. Is true of every, every. study. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, they always need more. But um. But yeah. But no. But definitely. And there's some studies now comparing meditation to standard Western therapy. Mm -hmm. And um. You know, what we're finding is that for certain conditions, standard Western, Western therapy is actually better, you know, or for certain symptoms. Um, and so sometimes, though, the meditation is as good as, and sometimes it's not as good as. And then, but sometimes there'll be a few symptoms that meditation is really good for, like much better than, than um, standard therapy. And so, so it's not, not that it's always better than everything. It's, it's, it has its limitations for sure. Okay, so... Let's get into sort of the meat of the interview here. Um, so we'll sort of keep the question simple with probably a really complicated answer. Sure. Um, how does meditation affect the brain? <laughs> okay. Go. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so um, I study MRI, which allows us to look at the brains of, of, of humans in real time. And there's a couple different ways we can look at the brain. So... We can look at brain activity and we can look at brain structure. And we've done both. And what we see is that meditation actually impacts both. So, so we can actually show that how the brain is wired changes after meditation practice. 
and that some of these changes are consistent with what people are reporting. Um, and then also sometimes some of these changes correlate with changes that we're able to observe in the lab, um, which is a very small percentage of what people report. <laughs> um, you know, because what, you know, we just don't have the tools to measure some of the changes that people, mm-hmm. people claim. But so for instance, in one of our studies, we found that the amygdala, which is uh, the center of the, um, the fear response and the fight or flight uh, response and, and stress, that it got smaller and that the change in the amygdala correlated with the change in stress. So the more people said, I feel less stressed, the um, smaller their amygdala became. Um, and then, um, you know, other people have shown that, for instance, and we as well, that sometimes change in symptoms in psychiatric populations or, you know, patient populations will correlate with the change in some of these brain measures. And when you're looking at, let's take the amygdala, for example, how long are people practicing meditation before these changes are actually seen right. or, or even felt? Right. So all of our studies have been two months. We okay. use a standard program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction or MBSR, um, and it's a widely available. It's taught in many, many academic or many, many health centers now. And, um, you know, it's a standard eight-week class, and it's nice because you learn the meditation purely in a clinical context. So there's no Eastern philosophy or religion. It's just um, just the meditation practices, pure and simple. And um, and it's for 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 you know people looking for stress reduction. And so we've used that program in all of our studies. There have been some other labs though who have looked after just one week or after two or three weeks, and they have found some of the changes that we have found after just very 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 short periods. Mm. Um, but again, so for the clinical settings, generally speaking, it's a two-month study, two-month period, a two-month class, where they ask you to come to class once a week. Okay. And it's usually an hour, an hour and a half class. And there's, so there's meditation, but there's also, you know, talk. And then they ask you to practice at home for 40 minutes a day. And now, of course, not everyone practices every day. Not everyone always practices 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So in our study, on average, in a couple studies, on average, it works out to about 30 minutes a day. Okay. But again, that works out to maybe practicing, you know, a lot of different. Um, and on our, um, there's a lot of analogies between meditation and sports. So mm-hmm. just as with physical exercise, sort of the more you do, the more you're going to benefit. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, the more you do with meditation, the more you'll benefit as well. Um, but, um, you know, and so, and we don't really know like what the minimum is in order to get these benefits. Mm-hmm. Some people say that even five or 10 minutes a day can bring about some small changes. Mm-hmm. But the recommendation is 30 to 40 minutes a day. 30 to 40 minutes a day. Okay. Yeah. And... Do you see changes, so aside from, let's say, changes in, in output, are you seeing, what other areas are affected most within the brain? I mean, are you seeing sizes of, like, are you seeing less input, less, more input, more output, I should say more output, less output, or, or size of right. other areas in the brain that, that are affected? Because, you know, the amygdala, I guess, can help you with stress and can help you feel a little calmer. But people always say, like, meditation will make you happy. 
Right. You know, so. <laughs> right. And know. so that's, 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 they're still working on that one. Um, so certainly the stress would be part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're not feeling so much stress, you're going to be happier. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this idea a couple years ago, there's someone did a study that has nothing to do with meditation. And what they did is they gave people um, this little app on their cell phones. And then periodically throughout the day, they would ping them and say, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, how happy are you and what are you doing and how in the moment are you? Mm-hmm. And what they found is that it didn't matter what the people were doing. Even when they were having sex or doing something like really highly enjoyable um, versus something very, very mundane, that if the person was daydreaming or lost in thought, they reported relatively low happiness. Whereas if they're really, truly in the moment, mm-hmm. they reported pretty high happiness. And that's something that meditation does. Meditation really brings you into the moment. And the whole idea is that your mind is not wandering, that you are right there in the moment focused and that um, you know, no matter what you're doing. And therefore, if, if this other study is correct, that just being in the moment makes you happier, then that's one way that meditation could help you be happier. Um, because the idea is that often when we're lost in thought – you know, we're, we're worrying about something, you know, we're worried about the future or thinking about something that happened in the past because we tend to, our mind tends to go to negative things. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the moment, present moment, generally things are pretty, pretty okay. So, um, so that's one way it might help. And um, then the way that we think it helps reduce stress is that it helps give a new perspective on things, right? Often when people start practicing, they talk about the pause, right? That when things happen, rather than instantly reacting, that they're able to pause and take a breath and sort of just let that pass and they're just not as engaged in the same way. They don't take things personally so much anymore. Um, and so when, when, when um, you know, negative things are happening and people are yelling and screaming and there's chaos everywhere and you're just, you're just watching it go by and you're not letting yourself get embroiled in it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's going to certainly help with stress reduction, but also make you feel a little bit happier. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, you can sort works. of, you yeah. know, roll the punches and just laugh it off a bit better. Right. Okay. And it, let's take it now, you know, as physical therapists, we sort of, every person, I would say the majority of people that come to us are coming to us because they have pain. Yes. So they're in pain. They either go directly to their PT or they go to the doctor. The doctor refers them to PT like you with your knee and your back. You had pain. You go into the doctor. They send you to PT. Yeah. So how can, and especially people with chronic conditions, you know, chronic low back pain in the U.S. alone is a billion dollar industry. More money than the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined is how much chronic low back, that's just low back pain. (laughs) Forget knees, yeah. Yeah, is is costing the the United States. So how can meditation, which is for the most part something that's free, Right. You know, maybe you have to put a little investment in it in the beginning because you right. want, maybe you want to go to some classes or you may buy a book or a DVD or a CD or whatever. Right. How, a CD, I don't even know who buys CDs anymore. <laughs> Downloads, I mean, download something. Um, right. So how can meditation help those suffering from pain, more chronic pain? And, and mm-hmm. how, how does that mechanism work within the brain? Right. So we did a small study on this and there's been a couple studies now doing things a little bit different ways and the results have been pretty consistent. So we're, we're pretty confident about this. So pain is really interesting. Let's just talk about pain for a moment mm-hmm. independent of meditation. Yeah. What we know is that there's two components to pain, both subjectively and in the brain. So one component is 
the intensity. So if I, you know, so if like just say temperatures for a second, you know, you know something that's cool versus something that's warm versus hot. And at some point it becomes very, very, very hot, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's just the intensity, the temperature. Or if um, I were to poke your skin with something, right, and just how hard it pushed against you, that would be the intensity. The other one is the unpleasantness. And so, um, and that varies tremendously. So you can have two people who both say, like on a scale of one to 10, that yeah, this is a five, you know, let's say say an eight in terms of intensity. You know, one person could rate that as a five in terms of unpleasantness, and another person could rate it as a 10 in terms of unpleasantness. You know, everyone has a very, very different pain thresholds and tolerances. So, um, and what we've know, found out about in the brain is that those are two very different brain regions. So one part of the brain is a sensory part of the brain. That's just intensity. Mm-hmm. And then another part, which is more sort of the emotional part of the brain, is saying how unpleasant it is, right? And how much um, you're not liking this. And what part, what regions of the brain are they? Right. So you actually have, it's called the sensory cortex. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, just in the middle of the brain and it's, um, you know, it's a, Sizable amount of brain, uh, and there's actually it's your there's an entire body map. So every part of your body has a representation in that part of the brain in the mm-hmm. sensory cortex, um, and it's you know, not just intensity, but also soft versus rough, temperature, you know, um, you know, hardness, uh, you know, all all sorts of aspects about touch mm-hmm. are in that in that um, uh, that area of the, of the sensory cortex. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whereas then the insula and the amygdala and some of these other regions are the ones that are involved in unpleasantness, right? So the sort of the limbic cortex, mm-hmm. right? Then you have the front of the brain. So the front of the brain is sort of the executive control function part of the brain, right? It's taking all the information in and processing it and making mm-hmm. decisions about it and doing all these sorts of things. So now what's really interesting is that they've done a lot of studies with, say, placebo and um, you know, there's a lot of ways you can control pain in terms uh-huh. of it. You can tell people to you know, distract them and pay attention to something else, and so uh-huh. then they don't feel the pain so much. Or, like I said, you can give them placebo-type creams or pills and things like this. Or you can just tell them to you know, cognitively try to control their pain with their thoughts. And what's really interesting is that in all of those cases, what you see is that the front of the brain, the control part of the brain, goes up. Right, Activity in the brain goes up. And then in the sensory cortex, which is the intensity, that mm-hmm. goes down. So mm-hmm. literally, your executive part of your brain is telling your sensory cortex to turn off. And even in placebo conditions, like where you don't even mm-hmm. know <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that's what's happening, the front of your brain somehow is figuring this out and saying, okay, you shouldn't be feeling pain, so just don't feel pain. What's interesting with meditation is it's the exact opposite. Mm. Right? So with meditation, the instructions are... Just notice it, don't try to control it, and just really be with it. And so that's what we see in the brain. The front part of the brain, which is all about control and and managing things, shuts down. And the sensory cortex, in in terms of intensity, actually goes up. But they don't actually say it feels more intense. It's just, it's it's evaluating it. Because again, it's not just intensity. It's also all the different aspects of it. And often what we tell people to do, because... Pain is actually a big part of meditation, just that because you're sitting still and often, you know, because you're sitting still, like your knee starts to fall asleep, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you start to have a little bit of pain in the back, right? Um, that's not uncommon. And so the, uh, the instruction is to go in and just notice it and like notice that 
you know, what does pain actually feel like? So often there's a little bit of throbbing and tingling and prickling and all these different. And so just noticing that without judging it, just being okay with it and just noticing it. And so you really get very sensitive to these. And so that's what we're seeing. So sensory cortex is going up, control is going down. And yet, despite that, when the meditators did this, they reported being less unpleasant. So although there was more sensory experience, there is less unpleasantness. So that's really, really interesting. So it's very, very different from all the other forms of, of pain management that's been mm-hmm. sh- uh, shown in terms of neural activity. And because you would think that, you know, so that sensory cortex is sort of the, the homunculus, right. homunculus man. So right. You, you know, you would think it just doesn't make, it kind of doesn't. It's counterintuitive, yeah. Yeah, it's very <laughs> counterintuitive because you would think that if activity in the sensory cortex is going up, you would feel more intensity with with your pain. Right. And then, you know, after this, in this study, at the end of the, at the, the conclusion of your study, did those people have less pain? Did their pain rating or their pain scale go down? Right. So in our study, and actually most of the studies that have been done so far, it has not been with pain patients. It's been mm-hmm. with experimentally induced oh, experimentally. pain. So, okay. so like you put like a little disc and you make it very hot, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and so, so, but that's the thing. So as they're getting it though, they say that yes, you know, when, again, on the one to 10 scale, they'll still say it's, you know, an eight in intensity, but before the meditation, they're saying it's an eight in unpleasantness, but then mm-hmm. after the meditation, they're saying it's like a five in, in unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. So it does, so the intensity is the same, but the unpleasantness goes down. And again, because what happens, so it's really interesting, like when, if you can really watch the pain and just notice the pain mm-hmm. without, and just sort of turn off the judging for a moment and the, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, and just get really curious about it. What you notice is that it's actually not static, that it moves around mm-hmm. and that initially it's throbbing and then there's some tingling and there's some heat and there's you know, all these different sensations. And when you really, it's just, and it starts to just break up and dissipate. It's really, really interesting. Um, and so, and some, it doesn't go away completely, but often it, it changes a little bit. So, um, but the key thing is just noticing it without reacting to it and without trying to keep it there like saying you know because it's like oh wait hold on i felt this i want to feel that again mm. so just just noticing what's actually there and if you can really just notice it without trying to make it go away without trying to you know do anything to it it will start to dissipate on its own a little bit and is that a result of the i guess the amygdala or the insula uh not being quite as reactive so are you not as emotionally charged because of the pain Right, that's part of it. Um, we don't again. We're not completely sure. There's still a lot to be done. More uh-huh. experiments need to be done. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's the idea. That somehow it's just um, how the brain is experiencing it is getting rewired. Interesting. Yeah. And how about the anticipatory effect of pain? Because right. you know, a lot of times you people say, "Oh, just thinking about that makes my neck hurt." Uh Or, you know, because obviously thinking about, you know, let's say you hurt your neck and just thinking about looking up towards the ceiling hurts, even though you're not doing it. Obviously, we know just thinking about things has a reaction within the brain. Sure. So. It's probably a little bit of tension, like probably like just thinking about, like I know when I think about my knee, like my knee automatically tenses up a little bit, mm-hmm. right? And probably, you know, and pain, pain is wild. You know, there's a lot going on with pain, yeah. you know, and so, um, you know, and I hate to say it, it's all in their brain, 
But we do know that one component, one aspect of pain is in the brain, right? Sure. I mean, for sure. I mean, definitely there is definitely tissue damage and whatnot, and there can be stuff going on, but there's also a, a, a brain component to it all. Mm-hmm. And so, and that, you know, how that's working and how that gets played out is really, really interesting. And so I do think that meditation can help with that aspect of it because mm-hmm. you can start to see some of those patterns and see some of the, because um, that's what happens with meditation is that you're sitting there and you're watching your breath and watching sensations in your body but you also start to notice your thoughts mm-hmm. and some of your thought patterns mm-hmm. and as you start to see them those start to change too because mm-hmm. you start to notice like oh yeah when I think about that I tense up right and so then you start you can start to relax around that and you know whatever it is that you know whatever your patterns are um and so so it does start to change some of the pa- thought patterns and so I think that can help change the the mental component of pain sometimes and you know so we're you know, when we talk about pain, like, for, I mean, we know it's sort of an output of your brain. It's not like, you know, your knee isn't saying pain. It's right. sending that signal to the brain. The brain evaluates everything that's going on, and then you either have pain or you don't, based right. on what the brain is saying. And and that can come from, like, external, internal thoughts, memories, everything. Right. So, Talking about the effects of meditation, it seems like it can kind of change that interoception. Right. It's sort of what's going on within the brain. And I know like pain takes up many components of the brain and it's very complicated and there's a lot of stuff, a lot of sort of, as one uh, lecturer, a physical therapist, a lot of magic happening up there in the brain, you know, <laughs> that is I oh, think, yeah. really hard to pin down. Because yeah. um, if if it were easy to pin down, then no one would have pain, right? Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about all of this, and you know, we're talking very technic, very technically, because a lot of the audience are, you know, PTs, things like that. Right. So let's say I'm a physical therapist, and I have a patient that comes in for chronic pain, and I want them to maybe try meditation. Mm-hmm. How can I explain to them in layman's terms? Mm. This is how it may benefit you. Right. Sort of breaking it down into something more simplistic yet very effective Uh to get them to go and try it. Right. Well, certainly, I mean, it is fantastic for reducing stress. Mm -hmm. And also, it's really good um, if there's... Any depression, it's fantastic also for depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so, because often those are sort of um, happenings, and especially pain and depression are very tightly linked. Yeah, I agree. And so, if nothing else, it can help with the psychological components of whatever may be happening with them. Um, so, that's part of it. And then in terms of the physical, because again, it can help the that part of the body and like the, the clenching around that part of the body perhaps mm-hmm. relax a bit. And, um, you know, probably like we know, for instance, like we know that the stress hormones are highly deleterious and that they make everything worse. And so by, with meditation, those are all getting reduced, right? And so you're going to have all the the inflammation and all those things are going to be reduced Mm -hmm. through meditation practice. And the idea is that you just as chronic stress makes those, ramps those up and makes, that's where the problem comes from. Um, hold on. Sorry. Uh, so just as chronic stress, you know, sort of ramps all those molecules up, you know, repeatedly practicing meditation is going to help bring those down, you know, repeatedly and just help reduce the levels of all those molecules um, in a more ongoing way, which can probably has beneficial effects 
in the periphery as well as psychologically. And and do you find have you found in any of your work that let's say even pe- let's say people who are are meditators or you know let's say they're meditating as you're doing your experiments. Mm-hmm. Do you find that people does the meditation have a lasting effect? Let's say you meditate on Monday, mm-hmm. and it's now you for whatever reason you didn't have a chance to do it, and it's now Friday, right? Or it's the following Monday, you know? <laughs> I don't right. know, or it's a month later, or, or I don't know what the timeline is. But is there carryover? You know, do people who meditate if they haven't meditated that day, or they're not meditating while you're doing an experiment, have you? Have you yourself seen or know of studies where mm-hmm. there's a lasting effect on the brain? Right. So again, this is where like if exercise mm-hmm. analogies are useful because I mean, if yeah, you just go and you you know go on a half mile walk once, that's going to be benefits. But you know, probably you know that might last a day or two, maybe, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but probably not much beyond that. Um, whereas if you routinely say walk a half mile, mile. Then, if you miss a few days or even a week, you're not going to completely lose all the benefits right away. So mm-hmm. that you know, the, there is some buildup, and there is some some you know some benefits will be more longer lasting the more you, if you're practicing it regularly. Mm-hmm. But again, talking to people and just myself, there definitely have been periods where I go where I'm not practicing very much. There's been you know a couple times when I've just been just a lot's been going on in my life, and mm-hmm. I've you know gone a week or two without practicing at all. Let's say. Um, or periods where I only practice for a long time, I actually just practice once a week, but I felt mm-hmm. that even practicing once a week for me was beneficial when I first started. Um, but now I practice more regularly and I definitely see a lot more benefits. And so and that's the thing because some people are like, Oh, you must practice every day for 40 minutes. And I'm very much in the, of the mindset that, you know, any practice is good, mm-hmm. you know, more is better. And you know, try to do even just a few minutes a day. Cause there are definitely periods where I just practice even two, three, four minutes a day, five minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that just small bit is helpful. But then, you know, a couple times a week then I just try to practice more. Mm-hmm. So, so you just have to see what works for your life and where you are right then. But, you know, certainly, especially in the beginning, I think it's useful to really get, you know, to really dedicate yourself to doing it at least say three times a week. Mm-hmm. you know, if possible, five times, you know, five to seven times a week. Um, you know, even if it is just 10 minutes a day, you know, and if possible, say 20, 30 minutes a day, you know, and then gradually build up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, because, yeah, there haven't been any really good studies yet to really address that scientifically. Mm-hmm. But just, again, anecdotally, talking to teachers and whatnot, mm-hmm. that's the the main uh, encouragement is just to get, do a little bit every day. And do you find, you know, you've been practicing for a long time. Do you find that your thoughts mm-hmm. surrounding your individual practice, does that ever interfere with what you're seeing when you're doing your <laughs> studies? You know, is there that, like, how do you sort of draw that line of practitioner to researcher? Right. Yeah, no, definitely. And there's been plenty of times when I've been sitting and meditating and all of a sudden I start thinking about an experiment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that happens a lot. Um and so, generally speaking, it's, it's beneficial in terms of my meditation practice helps me understand how to design experiments and how to interpret the experiments in ways that I think are useful. Um, you know, and, uh, um, you know, so generally speaking, being a meditation researcher, I think, is not deleterious for the most part. Um, 
you know, the main thing is I have to, I have to, you know, when I get excited about results, I have to remember, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is the first result. You need to replicate it. Need to, you know, and so I think that's, you know, I can't overinterpret it. So I think that's the main, the main, the mm-hmm. main issue is just, is, is that. And so again, I try to be really careful about not overinterpreting the results. Mm. And I guess that's kind of where that collaboration of other people really comes into play. Exactly. Yeah. And also I've gotten good about doing it myself too, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. But early on, definitely it was, it was useful. So yeah. Okay, so now we have a couple of questions from uh, some people via social media. Mm-hmm. So uh, one question was, um, have you had any experience with adverse effects in patients with oversensitization when they're asked to focus on their sensations? Um, I know they said it's sort of slightly off topic, but if you know of any studies on the acute effects of focusing on breath and exam performance... Hmm. Yeah. So those are sort of two different questions. Yeah. So we'll, let's, we'll do the second one first because that's okay. easier. Okay. So there have been a couple studies showing that meditation practice and specifically mindfulness, which is basically paying attention to the breath, mm-hmm. that that does indeed help cognitive ability. So it increases your ability to pay attention. And um, someone actually did a study with GREs and they showed increases in GRE scores before and after an eight-week meditation. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and a couple other studies like this. Actually, we just had a study come out last week showing that it helps preserve um, IQ with age because normally IQ goes down with age because our brain starts to deteriorate and it seems like it helps preserve that. Um, so so definitely for in terms of cognitive benefits, it seems like it's a big plus. The first part of the question is, can you, you know, can there be too much sensitization? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that's a yes and a no. <laughs> um, so if you're doing it properly, it's not a problem. If you're not doing it properly, it can become a problem. So what is the difference? The d- key difference is the the non-judging attitude. So if you are like really trying to pay attention and you're trying to get something out of it and you're trying to be super sensitive and, you know, or, or you're, you know, trying to push it away or something like this, that's when you run into the problems because the instructions are to just notice it without any cognitive elaboration, without any expectation of what it is you're going to become sensitive to. It just, just notice how it actually is. Mm-hmm. And if you really do it that way, it's not a problem. And that actually leads kind of into the next set of questions. So uh, there's also another two-part question is, what is the best way to begin the practice? Mm -hmm. So certainly, so I strongly recommend people to find teachers. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it's incredibly simple, right? But there's a million questions and I routinely get emails from people asking me crazy questions and I say to them, okay, do you have a teacher? And they say, no, <laughs> none of them do. And it's just because unusual stuff happens and you just need to, or you start getting ideas about it. So it's simply just notice the breath, right? So as you're sitting there, watch your belly rise and fall. That's it with each breath, right? Mm-hmm. Or notice how the breath feels as it passes through your nostrils. That's it. Very simple. Anyone can do it. But, of course, your mind starts to wander and then you start getting ideas about it and everything else like that. And so, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's a ton of books. There's a ton of information on the web. There's a lot of of free meditation Mm -hmm. recordings. If you go, like, to iTunes and stuff like that, there's a whole bunch on the free section, um, both of of instruction and talks about meditation as well as, you know, guided meditation recordings. Mm -hmm. Um, So I highly recommend all of those. 
And, uh, but if possible, find a teacher. And then increasingly, there's more and more teachers who are working online. Oh, so yeah, you, you, can, you can, like, through Skype and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, you know, when you were saying that, it reminded me, you know, when I had interviewed Sharon Salzberg, she said she started when she was in college, like back in the 70s, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be, or 80s. I don't want to age. Her oh, no, 70s, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she said she went to India. And she went to, you know, a, a meditation guru and they said, okay, we're going to breathe. And she said, what? I could breathe in Binghamton. What do I have to come all the way to India to just to breathe? And But then she realized how difficult it, it actually is, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's hard to focus on, on the breath. And, and I always, I, I know this is a question that I think she's answered and other people, but, you know, you 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 seem to wander away from the breath yeah, a hundred times, Yep, you know? And so I guess that leads into the next question is how do you know you're doing it correctly? Like if you're wandering off and you're like, oh man, I stink at this. I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> that's it. That's judging. That's See? judging. See, that's so you the have opposite to go of meditation. That. Exactly. Right. And so you have to know that that's just part of it and then mm-hmm. it's going to happen. And like, I know they say even like even Sharon and like really advanced monks, their mind is still going to wander. Mm-hmm. But again, it's sort of like, I know when I first started to run, right? I couldn't run a mile. <laughs> you know, I would like, you know, run about, I don't know, a couple hundred yards and then I'd stop and walk and then run a couple hundred yards and stop and walk, right? And so same with the with the meditation is that initially, yeah, you're going to have very short periods where you're focused and then your mind's going to wander mm-hmm. and then you bring it back. And so, but gradually over time is those periods of being focused get longer and longer and the periods of, of chattering and off topic and, you know, fo- wander, mind wandering get less and less, um, you know, and, and, and less frequent and less duration. Mm-hmm. So, but definitely there's still times, I mean, I've been doing this 20 years now, where, you know, I'll sit down, I'll stay focused for a good, you know, minute or two, and then my mind's gone. And, you know, 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, it's like, oh, yep, there it is. <laughs> you know, and just some days, especially, you know, if it's been a long day and I'm mm-hmm. meditating at night, you know, it can be really hard sometimes. But the teachers always say there's no such thing as a bad meditation. Okay. And so um, don't give up, just stick with it. And, you will start to notice things. I mean, and it, sometimes it takes a little while to before you, I mean, some people have very profound effects right away. Some people, mm-hmm. it takes a little time. Um, but you start to notice things. Like you start to notice that little pause. And you start to notice during the day that you're just more aware of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a little less reactive. Um, for me, when the early things was, I started understanding other people's point of view. Like I started finding myself being much more empathetic and compassionate with other people. And you know, this, there's one woman who I worked with who just drove me nuts. And you know, and that was it. Like after two or three weeks of practice, I suddenly realized that like she wasn't pushing my buttons anymore, and I could just laugh at her. <laughs> just like, wow, okay, something happened here. You know, and so lots of little things like that started happening. I started realizing, okay, there's something going on here. Yeah, and you know, I think you really touched on something that makes me think that every PT should be meditating at some point, mm. um, because that's what we need when we see our patients. Yes, you know, empathy, 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 right? Yes, um, and to be able to kind of understand and and be in the moment. So when they're telling you their story, you need to be really tuned in and not like. They're chattering away, and you're thinking, let's see, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? And uh, what am I going to – and you're really not doing anyone. You're doing everyone a disservice. You're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing your patient a disservice. 
So, you know, this should be mandatory impede, probably all medical training. Yeah. I would think, well, I know. From- cause, yeah. I work with a group called the Meditation Institute for Meditation Psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And what this is, is that, you know, because all therapists and physical. Psychological therapists uh-huh. do all day is listen to <laughs> the patients complaining. Yeah, yeah. And they say it makes a huge difference yeah, for them sure. that they're less reactive, there's less burnout, they're more in the moment. They're, and also lots of them will say that they are better able to figure out solutions for their patients and stuff like that. So, um, and imagine also for a physical therapist, never thought about this before, but, you know, because obviously you have to be very sensitive to the person's body and like mm-hmm. how they're moving and stuff like that. And so I imagine that you, that might help with that as well. I mean, I don't know. There's yeah. No I mean, I would think that. if you're more in the moment, are, maybe are you able, and this again, I don't know, but are you able to maybe be more sensitive to the patient's movements? Probably. You know, yes. Do you have a, a, is your eye a little more acute to movement of the patient and to, mm-hmm. you know, being able to put together what they're saying and, and what they're, what you're seeing. And I mm-hmm. think also maybe being, like we said before, a little less judgmental. Exactly. And and perhaps, you know, just... Seeing things as they are. <laughs> seeing things as they are and not putting your bias into what your patient is saying or what your patient's, how they're moving. Because exactly. I, I mean, I've done it in the past. You know, you, you sort of put your hands on someone and you're like, hmm, well, you know, from what they said, it would make sense that this would be off or this would be... You know, right. and then you look and you're like, yep, it is. And maybe it's not. Ah, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yes, maybe if yes. you were a little more in the moment and just relying on where you are versus skipping ahead a number of right of uh, steps in your in your evaluation or your assessment, it might make you a better therapist. Right. And you might also imagine like as you're moving the joints, you might become slightly more sensitive. Maybe mm-hmm. I, I just, just don't know. Yeah, I just don't know. I, don't know. I just don't I know. know. I don't know either, but yeah. I think that's really an interesting thing to think about. Um, yeah. See, there you go. You can do an experiment with PTs. Um, <laughs> I'm sure someone would think about that, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> so uh-huh. here's another question that I got from a lot of people, and I'm sure you get it all the time. Does it matter what time of the day you meditate? <laughs> Does yes. the brain act differently depending on the time of day? Right. So again, this is a, a, a yes and a no. So Especially in a lot of the yoga traditions, what they say is you have to wake up at 4 a.m. And their description of it is that the energy of the universe is different at 4 Uh a.m., which we'll come back to, and that that is the best time of day and you have to practice at 4 a.m., right? Uh So first off, I always laugh at that because 4 a.m. in India is... You know, of course, four o'clock in the afternoon here in the states. Right. I was just going to say, is that is that Eastern Standard Time? <laughs> or... Exactly. Exactly. So, so that whole thing about energy of the universe, right? We can debunk that right away, uh-huh. right? So, but what we do know is that um, sympathetic parasympathetic switches at four a.m. and four p.m., which is why you get the four p.m. munchies, right? And also, and so we know that cortisol and some of the other, uh, like the waking up factors, are actually peak at four a.m. So I think this is what they're actually tapping into is that, um, and certainly, yes, like if you wake up at 4 a.m., you definitely feel more alert and more clear than if you wake up at, say, 5 or 6 a.m., right? But that, of course, assumes that you also went to bed at, you know, 9 or 10. Yeah, and 7 got o'clock, nice. 7 o'clock the yeah. night before, yeah. Exactly, right. Um, you know, but if you get in that habit that then, you know, if you routinely get up at 4 a.m. versus if you routinely get up at 6 a.m., that there will be subjectively a difference at 4 a.m., you know, again, assuming that you go to bed at the right time and everything else mm-hmm. um, because that's just your circadian rhythms. 
Um, so, but, you know, for us Westerners who live normal lives, that's probably, you know, that slight difference in alertness at 4 a.m., you may or may not make a difference. Um, It is a little bit easier, I think, to practice in the morning just because your mind tends to be a little less clear and you don't have everything that's happened during the day. Mm -hmm. So there is something to be said about practicing in the morning. And again, the cortisol and everything else is a little bit, you know, so alertness and stuff. Um, But it's also hard at 4 a.m., you know, not to fall back asleep. (laughs) Again, especially if you have – because, again, these are from the yoga tradition, people who are living – 24 seven yoga meditation. And uh-huh. so their lives are very different. You know, they're just practicing all day. So it's very different than living a, a normal Western life. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes and no. <laughs> and, and last question here, does it matter how you sit, where you're sitting, how your mm. hands are? I know there's, you know, do you have to Lucas, like yeah. have your thumb and your Right. Middle finger together, palms up, or have one right. hand up in the air, which I would imagine would get really tired really fast. So exactly. Yeah. How does that all, like, where does that come from? How does that fit in? Right. Again, that's more from the yoga tradition as opposed to the uh-huh. Buddhist tradition. Uh-huh. And again, I think those are, like, there are, again, I think if you are practicing a lot, then you might start to notice subtle differences depending on, you know, doing the fingers versus not doing the fingers. Uh-huh. But again, for just, you know, normal everyday people just sitting and you're just doing it for stress reduction and, and relaxation and, and pain management, then just sitting however is comfortable. Frankly, I often do it lying down in bed. Nice. <laughs> I get up in the morning yeah. and I just do that. Um, especially when I first started sitting, because again, I had the low back pain. Mm-hmm. You know, I often pr- practice laying down just because I had the low back pain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I think there's small benefits to doing it in different postures, you know, and doing the fancy stuff, but, mm-hmm. you know, the fingers and things like that. But for the most part, it doesn't really matter. The main thing is the attitude. Great. And and on that, we are going, unfortunately, have to kind of wrap things up. But sure. what would you, what is your takeaway message, mm-hmm. I guess, from our discussion today? Right. Um, well, just try it <laughs> and see. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's there, it's there's a lot of data suggesting that it's can provide certain benefits, but it's mm-hmm. not a cure all. We still need physical therapists, mm-hmm. and um, uh, yeah, they should try it. Yeah, I sort of adding so you know maybe encouraging patients or encouraging people to to try and add it into the other things that they're doing as far as pain management is concerned, that they're, yeah. they're, you are seeing some benefits. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, for every PT, doctor, trainer, Pilates, yoga, whoever is listening, I think it's great advice. And now if people wanted to learn more about you, and I know you have a great TED Talk, uh, the mm-hmm. TEDx Cambridge, um, which I have already sort of thrown out onto Twitter and, and Facebook and things like that so people Thank can you. familiarize, of course, familiarize yourself themselves with you. But where can people learn more about you? And if they wanted to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Right. So uh, my website has a lot of information. And so uh, I guess if you just Google my name mm-hmm. and Mass General Hospital, you can probably find that. And, um, and that has my contact information there too. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Well, I mean, I, I really I want to thank you again for kind of taking the time out. This was great. I think your work is fascinating, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of learning more. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And, and thank you all for listening. And again, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Karen Litzy NYC, and I'll be posting, um, uh, I'll post the TED Talk again and, and some other 
websites and information. So uh, Dr. Sarah Lazar, thank you so much. And everyone, have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.